All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to uh, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. And this evening we are in the fifth and final message on these first eight verses of Revelation 21. And our subject is heaven. And I've used these first eight verses as an introduction to the final two chapters in Revelation in which John is able to preview the place of God's people, the place where they will live eternally. Uh, Previously, John saw the demise of Satan and he saw the doom of unbelievers. He was able to see the great white throne judgment and Uh, wicked men that are judged there for their rejection of Christ and also for other sins. And the result of that judgment is eternal damnation in the fires of hell. Well, we come to a much better scene in Revelation chapter 21 because here uh, John is able to see heaven. And thankfully, the last thing that we read in the Bible, the last part of human history, is not the repugnant scene of the great white throne judgment, but rather the Bible ends, the canon of Scripture ends and is complete with the complete joy of God's people in heaven. I'd like you to look at Revelation 21. We'll read these eight verses again this evening, starting with verse number 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. As we begin this evening, I'd like to give you briefly the previous points that we've already talked about in these messages. Uh, First of all, there was the remake of creation, then the radiant capital, the residing companion, the removal of cares, and the reign of the Creator. Verse number 1 is about the new atmosphere and the new earth that are created. The old uh, earth and the old universe pass out of existence because God in his omnipotence uncreates the present universe and then he begins everything anew. He creates ex nihilo, out of nothing, things which do not appear. And so we have a new heaven and a new earth that are untainted by the curse of sin. Then verse number two represents the, or presents to us, the radiant capital city of heaven that's called the New Jerusalem. 
And that is the home of the bride of Christ, which is his church. Uh, The new Jerusalem is particularly for them, but all of those that are believers in in Christ that are citizens of the heavenly country, uh, they will also be able to go in and out of this city if they have lived before the time that the church was given to us, or if they lived after during the tribulation and they were saved, they also have access to this city. Verse number three is about the residing companion. And as I said when we were in that particular study, that that is one of the greatest verses in the Bible because it tells us that after many millennia of man's existence, that finally we will see God, we will be at home with him, And he promised that he would dwell with us and we would be his people forever. Verse number four is about the removal of cares. And through a series of negative statements, God tells us what heaven won't be like so that we can understand what it will be like. We can contrast the things, all the bad things that are in this life to things that will not be in heaven. And so every adversity to the happiness and the well-being of God's people will be done away with. All of the former memories of this life that could possibly mar our thoughts in heaven, those are going to be wiped from our minds. And I guess if you wanted to put it this way, is that our our hard drive is reformatted. And uh, we're given a new operating system, which I, I think I could call the windows of heaven. The windows of heaven. And uh, that tells me that there are no lions or snow leopards in heaven, so all Mac users will be reformatted before you go to heaven. So no Mac users in heaven. And then in uh, verse number 5, this is about the reign of the Creator. He is the sovereign Creator, and He's the one who makes our new home and the one who completes our redemption. The Apostle Paul described our final salvation this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so, that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, For that we would not be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. And there you have the single best word that describes what our new state in heaven will be, and it's the word life. Everything that God intended life to be will be our existence in heaven. The Apostle John gave the reason for writing his gospel account, and he said in John chapter 20, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life in his name. Jesus said in John 10.10, I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. So the fullness of life is not what we have in the life that we live here, Peter said that the life that we live here is lived in heaviness and manifold temptations. We are given eternal life as we live here. We're given a a life of Christ, a life of God. But there are all kinds of troubles that we have in in this life. We learn to live with those because we trust in God. Despite all of those troubles, we're still happy being Christians. But how much better is it going to be in heaven when all of those troubles are gone? And so the life of heaven will be one that's beyond our comprehension. Now, 
we're ready here to move on then and see what John has for us in verses 6, 7, and 8. So we're going to look at verses 6 and 7, then finish with verse number 8. Verse 6 says, And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Number six on your outline is the reward for conquerors. On the last message, I touched a little bit on this verse and the words that we read here that God says, it is done. And those are similar words to what Christ spoke on the cross. He said, it is finished. And when Jesus spoke those words, they had a view towards the final salvation of man, but that salvation had not yet come. Now, the victory of the cross certainly did ensure that God's promises would come true, that redemption would be accomplished. It was as sure as done when Jesus was was crucified. But there's a lot of time between those words uh, when Jesus spoke them on the cross and by the time that we get to Revelation 21. And when God speaks these words, it is done, the literal meaning of that is it has become reality. In other words, there are no more promises. There's nothing left for God to do in the redemption of men. Redemption has been accomplished, and the final reality of God's redemption is there for God's people. We discussed hope, if you remember, in the 20th chapter, and it might seem a little bit strange to us in one sense to say this, but in heaven there is no hope, and in hell there is no hope. Eternity does not have any hope, and the reason that there is no hope in hell is because there's no way of getting out of that place and the reason there is no hope in heaven is because all hopes have been realized we have everything that we ever hoped for so when God says it is done he means it all has become reality then the next words that are spoken in that verse are also very significant it says I am alpha and omega the beginning and the end and you notice how that sentence starts he says I am God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, and then he gave, that was when he gave Moses his name. The people of God had never known the name of God in this way before, but God said to Moses, I am. And when he said that, he gave him a name that is in the present tense that shows us that God exists in in an eternal present. And that's actually the very same name that Jesus used for himself. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And when Jesus said that, that was his claim to deity. And he left no doubt in the minds of his disciples or in his enemies who he claimed to be. I mean, there was no guesswork in this. When Jesus said, I am, they knew that he was using words that pertain to the name of the Almighty God. Now, there's some people who say that Jesus never claimed that he was God. He never said that he was equal with God. But there isn't a clearer statement in the Bible than this, that he identified himself as the one that called Abraham. And he's the one that spoke from that burning bush and spoke to Moses. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're talking about the triune God. When we see that, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, this is the triune God that speaks. And we can kind of get the, cl- the, the flow of the passage here. In verse number 3, it says, God himself shall be with them and be their God. In verse number 4, God shall wipe away all tears. Verse 5, behold, I make all things new. And verse 6, I am Alpha and Omega. 
And those words declare the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And of course, it is the Holy Spirit that gave us this revelation. It's what John tells us in the first chapter. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And there's something that we do need to understand in salvation that we are in a relationship with the Almighty God. We're in a relationship with that one who spoke from the burning bush. We are children of God, the one that ordains all things whatsoever comes to pass. So he's the one who begins and ends. He's the one with all authority. Jesus said in verse 8 of chapter 1, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and was, which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And Revelation 21 identifies Jesus Christ as the eternal God. Listen to these words that we read this morning from Isaiah where God said, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. There is none else. You see why when he says, I am God, you see why we don't believe that there are any other paths to heaven? Jesus is not one of many gods. All religions are not equal. Jesus is above all others. He is all authority in heaven and earth. It all belongs to him. So he is the great Jehovah God. He is the great I am. Oh, but you'll talk to many people and say, well, that's, that's just too narrow. You're being far too intolerant not to consider the gods of all these different people, the gods that they believe in. Isn't it all right to believe in those? Well, there is no earthly reason and there is no heavenly reason why we should ever be more tolerant than God is. Because God is the one who has the final authority. He's the Alpha and Omega. Alpha and Omega, I know that you recognize those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And it would be the same as us saying, Christ is everything from A to Z. And he's everything in between. A to Z. That's what makes up all the words that we ever speak. All the thoughts that we ever think are made up of those letters from A to Z. And this is exactly what the Bible tells us that Jesus is. He is the all in all. He is the living word of God. Everything comes right down to him. So there we have assurance and comfort in our faith because we know that it's rightly placed. It's grounded upon the solid rock. In fact, the word of God says, and it says here, that we are conquerors. And that's conveyed by the word overcomers in verse number 7. Verse number 7 says, he that overcometh. If you were here with us in our Wednesday night service, we talked about this word overcomes. Now, here we have it, nikao, which is the noun form, or rather the verb form of the word nike. We say nike. And so he says, we are overcomers, we are the victors. Well, who are these, or what is it that these overcomers receive? Well, we notice first that overcomers are seekers of righteousness. He says, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. So who is it that is thirsty? Well, that's an interesting metaphor that we find in Scripture because those that are seeking the righteousness of Christ are said to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
So the one who thirsts after righteousness is the person that realizes he has no righteousness of his own. And he understands that he is in spiritual bankruptcy. He's poor in spirit. That There's nothing in him that commends him to God. And so he seeks the only way that he can be right with God. And that is for Christ to give him righteousness. And that righteousness is given to us by faith. Now, there are two very important words in this text. God says, I give. And you can underline the word I. And then the next word is the word freely. Salvation is initiated by God. There is no being in heaven or earth that can do this, and certainly you can't do it yourself. God never said, you and I will work this out. I'll do my part, and you do your part. This is not a synergistic regeneration. It's God who gives life. And he says, I give the thirsty the water of life freely. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, the scripture says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, he said, If thou knewest the gift of God, who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink. Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. So the one that seeks righteousness is the person who isn't satisfied until he gets the perfect provision of righteousness from Christ. And he wants it all. He's not satisfied with anything less than all. Because a real Christian wants to be as much like Christ as he can possibly be. And there isn't a person that Christ receives until that person is willing to give up all in order to find him. And so God is telling us here that all in heaven are there by his grace. They are there because God has given them life and given it to them freely. Salvation is a gift of God. And those that receive the gift are overcomers. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, as our song says. Now then also, overcomers receive the spoils of faithfulness. Overcomers are seekers of righteousness, and they receive the spoils of faithfulness. Overcomers is one of those many words that we find in the Bible that compare our lives to battle. The Christian life is compared to a spiritual warfare. It's a fight against oppression. And that oppression comes from many different forms or in many different forms. But all of that has the same common source. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the high places. And those powers and principalities and the rulers of darkness are all masterminded by Satan. Now, here's the wonderful thing about the passage that we're reading here when he talks about us being overcomers, and that is Satan is gone. Chapter 20 is behind us now. That war between us and Satan is over. It started in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, and it went on all the way up until chapter 20 in Revelation. Christ guaranteed the victory over Satan at Calvary, but it wasn't until we get to chapter 20 here that the war finally stops. And so in that 10th verse of chapter 20, it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that's one of the reasons why that we can read in verse number 6, God says, It is done. 
And so when that victory is won and when the war is over, to the victor belong the spoils. And this is what our faithfulness to fight that fight, to fight the good fight of faith does for us, is that by God's persevering grace through his works in us to do his will, because we fight on his side, because we are fighting in his strength, we will conquer and win the prize. And here in verse number 7, it shows us two prizes that are won because of that faith that we have in Christ. Number one is our spiritual substance. It's our inheritance. It's promised that we will inherit all things. And all things means everything that's contained in the new heavens and in the new earth, all that's in the new Jerusalem. It all belongs to God's people. And it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul would write in the book of Colossians, set your affection on things above and not on the things that are on this earth. And so Jesus said, lay up your treasures in heaven. And that's because heaven has everlasting treasure. The inheritance of heaven is something that never fades away. It never corrupts. And that's the consistency that we find throughout Scripture that we're not to put our stock in earthly treasures. We're not to work for this life but we work for the life that is to come. And so the first prize that we receive is spiritual substance, the inheritance of all things that belong to God in heaven and earth. And then the second prize is much more personal. It's our spiritual sonship. It's our adoption in Christ. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Now, let me relate to you the impact of that statement as far as John is concerned. Uh, Many times in his writings, John said that Jesus is the Son of God. He says that God is his Father. In the Gospel account that John wrote, he uses the word Father over 100 times. And the vast majority of those times refer to the relationship that Jesus has with the Heavenly Father. And then as we come to Revelation, of course, which is the book that uh, John wrote, John uses that same terminology. And he says in chapter 1, verse number 6, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, it is characteristic of the Apostle Paul to often say that we are sons of God, but there's only one place in all of John's writings where he said that, and that's in Revelation 21, verse number 7. You might want to circle that and keep that as a piece of Bible trivia. Chapter 21 is the only place where John talks about us being sons of God. And that's because of our adoption in Christ. So we are heirs of the same inheritance because we have been adopted into the family of God. Now, one more verse that we need to consider, verse number 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, number 7 is the removal of criminals. I don't suppose that there are too many unbelievers that would consider themselves to be criminals. I mean, they don't even like for you to call them sinners, much less that you would call them criminals. But this is exactly the way that God looks at this. There, there is a judgment and there is condemnation for those that are lost precisely because of this. They have broken God's law. And there is no satisfaction that's been made to God for this. And so they are justly condemned as criminals. Now, before I take a moment to break this verse down, you'll notice as... 
you've read that verse that it doesn't look like or it doesn't seem like most people would fit into those categories. We don't often think of people being abominable and murderers and whoremongers and such as that. Now, we do find a couple of categories here that we think people, everybody fits into, unbelievers. If they don't know Christ, they're unbelievers. And the Word of God says that all men are liars. And so we all fit into that category. So is John describing here what people do on the earth? Or is he making a point that this is not the character of people in heaven? Now, you might think, well, that's a kind of a subtle distinction, isn't it? But those are things that people argue about. When you get into conversations about the Bible and read what theologians have to say, they argue about what is the true meaning of that. Is he talking about people on earth? Or is he talking about this is not the character of people in heaven? And I would say that it's best for us to understand that he means both of those. Those who commit these sins on earth have not been forgiven, and so they are condemned in their sinfulness, and they die the eternal second death in the lake of fire. But this is also describing the kind of activity that is excluded from heaven, and that's because the sinful nature of every believer has been removed. And so there is no possibility that we could ever sin. No sins can be committed in heaven. And that actually makes the state that we're in in heaven better than what Adam was. Now, Adam was created in innocence. He was put into the, into the garden as an innocent person. But Adam had the capacity to sin. And in fact, we know he did sin. Now, we're often, at least in my preaching, I'm often fond of saying that what Christ did was to make us so much better off than we were in Adam. I mean, Adam had it made. Adam had a wonderful place in the garden to live, and he could have communed with God there. But actually, the position that we're in right now, believing in Jesus Christ as Savior and taken into heaven in that state, is going to be far better than it would have been if Adam had just stayed in the garden forever. And all of us here tonight were in the garden with Adam. Heaven's going to be much, much better than the Garden of Eden. So Adam is not, uh, uh, he had the capacity to sin, but in heaven we no longer have that capacity. So we're the same as the holy angels of heaven. After the fall of Satan, God removed the capacity of angels to sin. And so all of the holy angels that are there are, that are in heaven are now confirmed in that holiness so that Satan can never again cause a rebellion. There are no new allies for Satan that come out of the angelic order. And so this is what God does to us. He makes us so that we can't sin. All of the ability to sin has been removed. And you might wonder, well, how does that happen? I mean, how is that ability or why don't we sin? And doesn't this really beg the question of free will? Is our free will in heaven removed? Well, no. It helps us really to understand what free will truly is. Uh, We don't disagree that we have free will now, but we do understand that our will is dictated by our nature. And we have a sinful nature, so what do we do? We sin. We can't do anything but sin. I mean, the Word of God says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. You could never get faith out of that, out of that kind of, or the kind of faith that, would, that God would accept out of something that's filthy and sinful that has a nature of sin. It just can't happen. And so that's why we need God to uh, give us a new nature. Uh, we are incapable of choosing God with this old nature that we have. Now, in heaven, we will also have free will, but it operates. Our will operates from this perfect nature. And so what do we do when we have a perfect nature? 
we never sin. It's not our nature to sin. We become like God. In that sense, our nature is like God, and we have the same will and the same attitude towards all these things that God has. So our nature then is changed so that we could never commit the crimes that are mentioned here. Now, we want to move on here and look at these categories, and I'll do these rather quickly tonight. I'm not going to keep you a long time. There are eight of these categories that we find in verse number 8. The first one I would label as cowards. It says, the fearful, the fearful will not be in heaven. Well, who are they? Well, I think this mostly refers to the people that feared the Antichrist, and they took his name, and they took his number, they took his mark, And they did that so that they wouldn't be persecuted by the Antichrist. They came down on his side. And certainly we're not talking about believers here because believers are those that fearlessly in the book of Revelation withstood persecution. They refused to take the mark of the beast and so they were martyred for their faith. So the fearful are those that are characterized by Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 those that are afraid to leave family and friends, afraid to stand up for Christ because they understand the consequences of that and they're not willing to bear those consequences. And another way to describe them is what John said about the chief rulers of the, of the synagogue, the rulers of the Pharisees. He said they believed on Christ. He used the word believed, but they wouldn't confess him because they feared that they would be thrown out of the synagogue. John chapter 12 says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. And that's not a belief of saving faith. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And anybody who thinks like that, who's fearful to take the name of God and to believe in Christ, will not be in heaven. The second category is unbelievers. And I don't think that this is talking about those that are in ignorant unbelief, not in the sense of people that have never heard about the gospel of Christ, and neither is this talking about people that are moral, but they're indifferent towards God. Now, it's true that none of those will be in heaven. Uh, No one that hasn't believed in the gospel of Christ, whether they've had what we call opportunity or not, that's not a determining factor whether a person is in heaven. What determines whether you go to heaven or hell is your sin. And all people are are sinners. And so I think that what it's talking about here, mainly when it says unbelievers, is those who have heard of Christ and yet they have rejected him and even go a step further than that, that they openly speak against him. Now we could certainly lump all unbelievers in here, but here we have particularly these kinds of people, those who openly reject Jesus Christ and then speak against him. Now in this category, I could see a person like Stephen Hawking. Now there's a man who is gifted in worldly wisdom, but he is convinced that he has explained away the need for God. And so when he speaks on this subject, he is a liar. I remember when they had those programs on the Discovery Channel a few months ago. I don't know if any of you saw those or not. But uh, they were talking about creation, how the world came into existence uh, and all of that. And Stephen Hawking gave his opinion. And and he had come to the conclusion that he had scientifically figured out why there is no God. And they had invited several 
people to be on a panel to discuss that. Three people, I think, in fact, and a couple of those were other scientists who were asked to give their opinions of what Stephen Hawking said. And there was even one man there who was a Catholic theologian, and he gave his opinion as well. Now, for that man, it would have been the simple truth to simply say this, Stephen Hawking is a liar. He is a liar. When he speaks on this subject, he is a liar. That's what the religious guy should have said, but he didn't say that. He, that, that wasn't his tack. So I think that somebody like Stephen Hawking would fit two categories here, willful unbelief and also the lying that we'll get to a little bit later. So I think we're talking here about people that are in open rejection against Jesus Christ, speak openly against his name. Thirdly, the next category is the polluted And the word we have here is abominable, which actually means disgusting. And it is a a description of those that have a polluted lifestyle. These are people that defiantly ignore Scripture, and they deliberately live a lifestyle that's counter to the commands that we find in Scripture. Now, strangely enough, folks, there, there are nominal Christians that fit into this category. These are the kinds of people that when you preach to them about their sin, that for some reason it flies right over their head and they just don't get it. And so they go on living evil lives and speaking uh, evil things and they come into the church for a service and they're all smiles and patting each other on the back and say what fine Christians we are. But God says they are polluted. The uh, apostle Peter, I think, had a interesting way of putting it when he talked about Simon the sorcerer. He said, I perceive that you are still in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And I'm afraid there are a lot of people who say that they are Christians that are in that category. Fourthly, there are murderers. And that one we think is a little bit self-explanatory, except here I think that the meaning is a little bit more precise uh, because in the context of Revelation, it has reference to those who martyred God's people because of their faith. And we find that throughout the book of Revelation, there are many martyrs, uh, all of those that wouldn't accept the mark of the beast, they were martyrs for Christ. But then you also might remember this, that when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount when we discussed what Jesus had to say there, that he broadened this term murderers. And he said those that are angry with their brother without a cause are also murderers. It kind of helps you to see how people begin to fit in these categories if you really understand these descriptions. The fifth one is the immoral. And the word here is whoremongers which comes from the same root word as we get pornography. And it means a fornicator. It includes all kinds of unrestrained sexual sin. And that was really a a problem in the time that John lived in the Roman Empire. I mean, that is listed as one of the causes of the fall of the Roman Empire was the moral decadence of the people. And here I think that John could hang out an Uncle Sam poster because America is falling deeper and deeper into those same sins that brought down the Roman Empire. Sometimes you're even afraid to think because our vocabulary has been taken over by so much sexual innuendo that you can't even think pure thoughts, it seems, anymore. Even when a preacher preaches a sermon, people can twist the words and come up with all kinds of prurient thoughts, even out of the preaching of the Word of God. 
And then, of course, things like legitimizing homosexuality. I mean, we brought all of that filth out into the open. That's what the Bible calls immorality. And it says the immoral will not be in heaven. Now, I was looking at a newspaper a few weeks ago, and I read a quote by Brad Pitt, that bastion of ethical virtue. And uh, when he was asked a question, he said, when are you going to marry Angelina Jolie? And he said, well, we'll get married when all people can get married. Well, when all people in America can get married, folks, America is going to singe its feet on the edge of hell when that happens. Number six, sorcerers. Now, all of you Harry Potter fans, listen up to me here. The word sorcerer comes from the same word that we get pharmacy or pharmaceutical. And in John's time, it meant those who used drugs and used those for casting spells and doing witchcraft. Sorcery is not a fantasy fun thing. It is against God. It's, a, it's an abomination to God. It's a kind of thing that belongs in hell. But sorcery is one of the tricks that the Antichrist will use. He'll use drugs and witchcraft at, and uh, cause people through those things to follow him. In fact, in Revelation 18.23, it says there that sorcery, or by sorcery, all the nations are deceived. Number seven is idolaters. Idolaters. I want you to notice the kind of company that those that idolaters keep. Uh, These are all lumped in with murderers, fornicators, and drug abusers, those that use hocus-pocus incantations. And I was looking at that, and I was kind of thinking, well, that's pretty good company there because what we're describing looks like the hierarchy of Roman Catholicism. I mean, again, if you take this in the context of Revelation, you would have to think that John has chapter 17 still in his mind when he talks about the great whore. And certainly Rome has murdered millions of believers, so they fit the category of murderers. They're involved with fornication among their popes and in the monasteries and the convents. And then, of course, you have their pedophilia and their homosexuality among priests. They have a drug of choice. That's called alcohol. And there's plenty of that that flows in the Roman Catholic Church. And Rudolph, the red-nosed priest, is leading the the charge there. They use incantations. They have their hocus-pocus where they transform the, supposedly transform the, the host and the wine into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, or at least that's what they say. And then to top all of that off, they are the most idolatrous religion in all of the world in all of the world. Do you remember when we talked about this uh, several months ago? We were talking about the great whore, Revelation chapter 17. And um, I mentioned to you at that time, you know, one of the reasons that there was this huge fight between Muslims and Christianity, at least Muslims got this right. They thought that Roman Catholicism, were the, they were the worst idolaters that the world had ever seen. Now, that's, if there's a positive side to Islam in any way, it might be that they don't worship idols. They're still godless people, and they're still going to hell for their belief, but they don't worship idols. And one of the reasons they tried to stamp out Christianity wherever they went was because the Christianity was controlled by the Roman Catholic Church, and there was all of these idols, and that's what they were trying to get rid of was idols. And so the Roman Catholic Church is, the, again, the most idolatrous religion there is in the world. Their churches are filled with idols. And the one of Mary leads the way among their idols. So you're not going to find any of that in the New Jerusalem. 
Then finally, we have this last category, and that is liars. And perhaps this category is used mainly in a religious context. There are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. In 1 John, the Apostle John tells us that. And so the world, the world today is really teeming. It's just filled up with religious liars. You turn on television, watch religious programming, turn on CBN, and 99% probably of religious programming is filled up with people that are telling lies, lies on top of lies that come in the name of Christianity. And that is one of Satan's tricks to deceive people. The Bible says he transforms himself into an angel of light. And as he does that, he curls and he twirls his hair and he smiles and he says... Give God a hand. We're doing God's work. Give God a hand. Liars are guilty of sending people to hell. This is why we're so very much concerned about speaking the truth of the Word of God from the pulpit of Brian Baptist Church. We don't want to be classified with religious liars that send people to hell. So religious liars never help anybody unless they're helping them into hell. So this is the list then, and we do need to be thankful that God says in heaven there will be none of this. There's no chance that there can be any of this in heaven. It can never get started up again because God is going to make us impeccable. Impeccable. And the Latin word for that is non possibicare, impossible or unable for us to sin. So behold, all is new. And there's a lot more that we have to look at. We're going to take up next as the, we go into the next verses, starting verse 9, going down through verse 27 in chapter 21, then on into chapter 22. We'll talk about John's description of the new Jerusalem and what a magnificent place that it will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house again tonight. We thank you for the word that you've given us. Lord, help us to understand the truth. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word that we can read and understand and obey. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. Bless our people, Lord. Give us a special blessing for having been here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.